<coughs> Hello, and welcome to the For We Are Many podcast. Uh, today we're doing part two of our dive into uh, the evolution of Eugene, Eugene Debs following the Pullman strike. Uh, you know, him, you know, finally being like, hey, I'm a socialist. Um, in the last episode, we covered the social democracy of America, the social democratic party of America. And uh, there was something else, wasn't there? Yeah, and there's so many alphabet things going on there that yeah. I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> yeah, there's a but lot of similar was... names in these pieces uh, as, you know, organizations split apart and merge back together. <laughs> right. There was a lot of crisscrossing going on there of two organizations that split in two and two of their halves merged together, if I remember correct. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess right off the bat, we're seeing this kind of, this kind of back and forth, like, dialectical relationship, um, you know, just in the struggle of trying to unite the left. Right, and people splitting up parties over differences in opinion about approach, basically, because... That one major split had everything to do with um, these people being in support of having a bunch of socialists move into specific areas that were red strongholds, uh, the other red, Republican red, um, and bringing some communist red and socialist red into the picture. Like, wait a minute, we're we're going to go here and we're going to actually, you know, well, become an influence for the left here. Yeah. Uh, and then this other group disagreed. Yeah, that was the Cooperative Brotherhood. That was the the other thing. Right. Um, what? That being what said, they were calling I mean, colonialism. Ideas, yeah. Well, they were calling it colonizationism or something like that. It was a, it was some take on it, colonialism, but right. Basically, colonizing republican-held areas in order to bring some left influence in and show people like hey we can actually get further with workers rights by following these ideals and practices than the ones that have been put in place by neoliberalism basically which you know circumvents both the democratic and republican parties speaking, of the, speaking of the democratic and republican parties uh i guess this is a good time to Kind of give an overview of what we're going to open the episode with, which is Eugene Debs' 1904 acceptance speech, uh, accepting the nomination for president. Um, and he kind of, you know, takes some swings at the Democrats and Republicans in that speech. For sure. Um, he was good at that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, he had a very strong hand when it came to slapping the shit out of them, and I love it. Yeah, and I mean, he seemed, he seems to me very focused. Like, he thinks through every word he's going to say, you know? Right, he wanted to be impeccable with his word, and I can respect that. Um, but before we get too deep into this, though, I uh, feel like we should, you know, do our shameless plugging 
All right, fire away. Uh, we are on Facebook. We are, uh, well, we have two groups on Facebook. We have the Mutual Aid Organizing Group, which we use to try to help people that are either trying to take part in mutual aid or people that need help. We're trying to put these people together. Um, right. Then we have the Education and, Discu and Discussion Group, which is for education and discussion. We talk about a lot of things in that group. Um, we've talked about MMT. We've talked about critical race theory. We've talked um, a lot about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, while well, social movements in general. Let's right. See, Lately, at, we've been talking a lot about the issues going on with line three. Um, you know, there's there's still water protector us uh, standing up to the yeah. oil companies and trying to block this stuff. There, there are so many things going on in line three is a big focus right now where the that tribes being said, um, not to give away too much, but I guess it's, I don't know if this is going to come out before our next current event stream or not. Uh, but I stumbled across the video today that I intended putting in the current event stream. Um, Sweet. More in-depth coverage on line three, I'm taking it. Yeah, it, it has to do with an event that happened today, which uh, we are recording this on the 7th of July. So that way, <laughs> that way, when I say today, the listeners know what I'm talking about. Uh, right, not next Wednesday. They're, they're trying to like dig the easement under a waterway to run the line, right? And they hit an aquifer. And now this toxic sludge is spilling out into the river. Well, I mean, not not exactly. I mean, they, they drilled into an aquifer. So like a natural underground spring is just emptying into this river that they were trying to drill under. Okay. From what that looked like on that video when I watched it earlier, what was on her hands looked like more than just mud and I, muck. Well, I mean, there's going to be whatever um, oils were on the tools they were using to drill. But it's not like a, it's not like a hydraulic fracturing incident. I I thought that's literally what it was from the description. I could be wrong. I thought they had said that the um, this is actually quite common when it comes to it, it doing quite, the horizontal is, drilling. Yes, it is. It is quite common in fracking. But what they were doing was drilling the easement for okay. the pipeline for line three and either way it's terrible i mean that mixed up a shit ton of sediment and now there's an aquifer draining down the river um and i mean even the sediment alone qualifies as pollution i mean it totally ripped up the river bottom right you can see in that video where it was literally pushing all of like the river bottom up into the water where you could see clear water on one side and on this side where they fucked up was nothing but pure brown muck. Yeah, and I mean, they were, they were talking about how this kind of thing happens often with easements and they hardly ever get reported and that's why they were so adamant to film it. Um, right, she even said, said on there, like, nobody would have even known if they hadn't already been there. Right, right. You know? 
And I mean, I definitely want to dive deeper into that on Monday. And that's why I said I'll definitely put it in the uh, current event stream. Because I mean, that being said, I, I could be mistaken on some of the details myself. But either way, it's not a good situation. And it probably would have gotten swept under the rug if there weren't people already there. Right. Because that's the thing, like at this point, the company's going to probably have to put out a statement concerning this incident because they're being called on it. But if somebody wasn't out there filming exactly what was happening as it's happening, they could have easily hidden that. Like, fuck it, it's in a rural area. If you don't see it, it didn't happen, right? Right. Um, anyway, we're also on YouTube for We Are Many Podcast, uh, Instagram at For We Are Many Podcast, Twitter at For We Are Many Two, and For We Are Many.org. We also have a Patreon. Uh, if you want to help us, you know, pay our overhead or maybe even pay our bills, uh, at literally every dollar helps. That's patreon.com slash For We Are Many. And, uh, I think that's about all I got. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that would definitely help significantly to get some donations and considering like the amount of advertising that we do to be able to even get any kind of exposure on like Facebook, Instagram, etc. The money that we're spending to, you know, cover the software that we use to be able to stream this out to so many different platforms at once every little bit does help tremendously so thank you to those of you who have who have already become donors thank you for planting those seeds all right so i guess we can get underway then um, absolutely so this is eugene deb's 1994 <coughs> nomination presidential nomination acceptance speech of the socialist party of america uh, this was may 6 1904 in the councils of the socialist party the collective will is supreme applause personally right. i could have wished to remain in the ranks to make my record Humble though it might be, fighting unnamed and unhonored side by side with my comrades, I accept your nomination not because of any honor it confers, but because in the socialist movement no comrade can be honored except as he honors himself by his fidelity to the movement. I accept your nomination because of the confidence it implies, because of the duty it imposes. I cannot but wish that I may, in a reasonable measure, meet your expectations that I may prove myself fit and worthy to bear aloft in the coming strife, the banner of the working class, that by my utterances and by my conduct, not in an individual capacity, but as your representative, I may prove myself worthy to bear the standard of the only party that proposes to emancipate my class from the thraldom of the ages. It is my honor to stand in the presence of a very historic convention, and I would, that Karl Marx might be here today. I would that LaSalle and Engels, the men who long before the movement had its present standing wrought and sacrificed to make it possible for me to stand in this magnificent presence. I wish it were possible for them to share in the glories of this occasion. We are on the eve of battle today. 
We are ready for the contest. We are eager for the fray. We depart from here with the endorsement of a convention that shall challenge undisputed the approval of the working class of the world. The platform upon which we stand is the first American utterance upon the subject of international socialism. Hitherto, we have repeated, we have reiterated, we have followed. For the first time in the history of the American movement, we have realized the American expression of that movement. There is not a line, not a word in that platform which is not revolutionary, which is not clear, which does not state precisely and properly the position of the American movement. We leave this convention standing on this platform to throw down the gauntlet to the capitalist enemy, to challenge the capitalist oppressor, to do battle for the per uh, perpetuation of a system that keeps in chains those whose name we meet today. There is a Republican Party, the dominant capitalist party of this time, the party that has its representative in the White House, the party that dominates both branches of the Congress, the party that controls the Supreme Court, the party that absolutely controls the press, the party that gives inspiration to the subsidized pulpit, the party that controls every force of government, the party that is absolutely in power in every department of our activity. And as a necessary result, we find that corruption, corruption is rampant, that the Congress of the United States dare not respond to the demands of the people to open the sources of corruption from which the lava stream flows down the mountainsides that they adjourned long before the hour struck for adjournment in order that they might postpone the inevitable. There is a Democratic Party, and somebody shouts, where? <laughs> <laughs> a party that is uh, not enough, not enough, damn it, not stock enough left to proclaim its own bankruptcy. An expiring party that stands upon the crumbling foundations of a dying class a party that is torn by dissension, a party that cannot unite, a party that is looking backward and hoping for the resurrection of the men who gave it inspiration a century ago, a party that is appealing to the cemeteries of the past, a party that is trying to vitalize itself by its ghosts, by its corpses, by those who cannot be heard in their own defense. Thomas Jefferson would scorn to enter a modern democratic convention. He would have as little business there as Abraham Lincoln would have in a modern Republican convention. If Damn they were right. living today, they would be delegates to this convention. The Socialist right. Party meets these two parties face to face without a semblance of apology, without an attempted explanation, scorning to compromise. It throws down the gauge of battle and declares that there is but one solution of what is called the labor question. And that is by the complete overthrow of the capitalist system. You have honored yeah. me. Uh, you can go ahead. Do you want me to take a turn? Um, you have honored me in the magnitude of the task that you have imposed upon me, far beyond the power of my weak words to express. I can simply say that, obedient to your call, I respond. Responsive to your command, I am here. I shall serve you to the limit of my capacity. My controlling ambition shall be to bear the standard aloft where the battle waxes thickest. I shall not hesitate as the opportunity comes to me to voice the emancipating gospel of the socialist movement. I shall be heard in the coming campaign as often and as decidedly and as emphatically, as revolutionarily, as uncompromisingly as my ability. 
my strength and my fidelity to the movement will allow. I invoke no aid but that which springs from the misery of my class. No power that does not spring spontaneous from the prostrate body of the workers of the world. Above all other, all other things, I realize that for the first time in the history of all the ages, there is a working class movement, perfectly free from the sentimentality of those who riot in the misery of the class who are in that movement. On this occasion, above all others, my comrades, we are appealing to ourselves. We are bestirring ourselves. We are arousing the working class, the class that through all the ages has been oppressed, crushed, suffered, for the one reason that through all the centuries of the past, this class has lacked the consciousness of its overmastering power that shall give it control and make it master of the world. This class is just beginning to awaken from the torpor of the centuries. And most hopeful sign of the times is that from the dull, the dim eye of the man who is in this class there, goes forth for the first time in history, the first gleam of intelligence, the first sign of promise that he is waking up and that he is becoming conscious of his power. And when he, through the inspiration of the socialist movement, shall become completely conscious of that power, he will overthrow the capitalist system and bring the emancipation of his class. To consecrate myself to my small part of this great work is my supreme ambition. I can only hope to do that part which is expected of me so well that my comrades, when the final verdict is rendered, will say he was not a candidate for president. He did not aspire to hold office. He did not try to associate his name with the passing glories, but he did prove himself worthy to be a member of the Socialist Party. He proved his right to a place in the international socialist movement of the world. If when this little work shall have been completed, this can be said of me, my acceptance of your nomination will have been so much more completely made than I could hope to frame it in weak words, that I close not with the decided utterance, but with the wish and the hope and the ambition that when the fight has been fought, when the task you have imposed upon me has been performed so far as it lies in the power of an individual to perform that task, that my acceptance of the honor you have conferred upon me will have been made and that your wisdom and your judgment will have been vindicated by the membership of the party throughout the country. From the depths of my heart, I thank you. I thank you and each of you and through you, I thank those you represent. I thank you not from my lips merely. I thank you from the depths of a heart that is responsive to your consideration. We shall meet again. We shall meet often. And when we meet finally, we shall meet in much larger numbers to ratify the coming of the Socialist Republic. All right. <laughs> nice applause track. <laughs> Yeah, so I realized that I wasn't sharing sound with my screen sharing, and I was trying to do oh. that. Like when you start, when you took over reading, I was trying to do that. Like when it said applause in the speech, but yeah, <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't sharing sound, so I was just like you know over here laughing to myself like an idiot, and you can't even well, hear it. <laughs> I can hear the music again now, so I see now that it wasn't because of transferring sound to my headset it was your computer not sharing the sound <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah. here I fiddled with settings for so long, like, wait a minute, why can't I hear the music anymore? Yeah. Learning curve. We write anyway. it well. Right. Um, so we're going to be talking about, well, the first thing we're going to be talking about is the party whose acceptance speech that was. Um, the Socialist Party of America was a socialist political party in the United States, formed in 1901 by a merger between the three-year-old Social Democratic Party of America from part one, and disaffected elements of the Socialist Labor Party of America, which is an organization that has been mentioned in, I think this is the third piece it's been mentioned in now. Right. Um, which had split from the main organization social de uh, of the... It had split from the main organization of the Social Democratic Party of America in 1899. So, you know, everything is cyclical. <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> in the first decades of the 20th century, it drew <clears throat> significant support from many different groups, including trade unionists, progressive social reformers, populist farmers, and immigrants. However, it refused to form coalitions with other parties or to even allow its members to vote for other parties. Eugene V. Debs twice won over 900,000 votes in presidential elections in 1912 and 1920. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his presidential campaigns, especially the 1920 campaign in a little bit uh, throughout the course of this episode. While the party also elected two representatives, Victor Berger and Meyer London, those are familiar names from the previous piece, uh, dozens of state legislators, more than a hundred mayors, and countless lesser officials. The party's staunch opposition to American involvement in World War I, although welcomed by many, also led to prominent defections, official repression, and vigilante persecution. The organization was further shattered by a factional war over how to respond to the October Revolution at the Repub uh, Russian Republic in 1917 and the establishment of the Communist International in 1919. Many members left the party in favor of the Communist Party USA. Um, and if the next piece that we do is on the Red Scare, we're going to be diving into those topics more. Uh, because right. if, if the October Revolution hadn't happened, I don't think, uh, and, and subsequently the Communist International started, I don't think that there would have been a split between the Communists and the Socialists, but anyway, I feel like this is also part of where the narrative in America or other Western countries that Communism and Socialism are different, I think this is where it all comes from, this is what it boils down to. Right, these these splits because of what, in hindsight, you know, to us may appear to be like minor disagreements amongst people that they could have worked out. They saw it as reason to split from each other, and we're like, wait a minute, if we're really going to have an impact as the left, we need to unite. There are other smaller, you know, scale issues that we can deal with individually, but overall when it comes to the working class rising up we have to bring the socialists and the communists together we we need we need that our strength is in our numbers 
And I mean, I, I guess I'm just using this excuse to throw a little shade at the Communist Party USA. But like, wow, how the mighty have fallen. They backed and, and pushed Biden in 2020 because oh. we had to stop oh. the fascist threat. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, just uh, replacing full on, you know, like adamantly fascist Trump with fascist light Biden isn't getting rid of the fascism in our government. Right. Just because he's slightly more palatable because, you know, he, he doesn't do the same shit that Trump had done concerning the LGBT community and things like that, that he rolled that shit back to, like, what he, he and Obama had started doing years ago. Well, I mean, um, to be fair, though, the Communist okay, Party in USA has been going downhill for decades at this point. They never really got over the Cold War, like, if it really comes down to it. They never really recovered from that. Um, but the party a lot of, of that's due to Red Scare bullshit. Oh, I know that. You know that. I'm sure they know that. Um, but that being said, that makes them more afraid to, you know, advocate that party line. Whereas the modern day party of socialism and liberation is not afraid to. <laughs> right. Draw that right. Line. It's like, how can you even call yourself a communist party anymore if you were going to support a capitalist fucking pig? Um, I just, anyway, I digress. There, there's some other, there's some other, in my opinion, problematic narrative in the Socialist Party's platform. Uh, the party was always strongly anti-fascist, as it should be, as well as anti-Stalinist. And uh, Stalinism isn't a thing. Right, there is no Stalinism. Stalin just didn't do good enough of a job following Leninism when Lenin was no longer alive to keep his ass in check. Right. I mean, honestly, I think Stalin probably was the right guy for the job. He just got too much power too young. Didn't know how to control himself. <laughs> and not right. like, not like right. Stalin Right. Which seems really to made... be an issue. Right. Which, I mean, I, it's not like Stalin really <laughs> made all those decisions alone anyway. Nine times out of ten, he was just there to give the okay to something that was... <laughs> long decided by a local chapter of the party but anyway we're getting off topic so i'll shut up and go back to reading we are <laughs> we <laughs> ramble well <laughs> um, but back to the article here on the the spa um after endorsing robert m la follette's presidential campaign in 1924 the party returned to independent action at the presidential level it had modest growth in the early 1930s behind presidential candidate Norman Thomas. The party's appeal was weakened by the popularity of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, the organization and flexibility of the Communist Party under Earl Browder, and the resurgent labor movement's desire to support sympathetic Democratic Party politicians. A divisive and ultimately unsuccessful attempt to broaden the party by admitting followers of Leon Trotsky and Jay Lovestone calls, or caused the traditional old guard to leave and form the Social Democratic Federation. While the party was always strongly anti-fascist as well as anti-Stalinist, like you just pointed out, its opposition to American entry war or entry in World War II 
cost it both internal and external support. Um, which is is sad, you know. Being anti-war shouldn't, you know, have cost them support. I, you know, yeah. that that's one that's a hard fence to sit on, though, because, um, you know, World War Two was over some really fucking extreme shit. I mean, you know, the Nazis definitely needed to be the... stopped, but it was the Red Army that stopped them, not us. Exactly. That's what I was gonna say. I mean, like. We might have brought about a quicker end of the war, but the Red Army was going to shove it up Hitler's ass one way or another. They'd... Right. They they already had it by the time we hopped in. We were just fucking support, basically. We were holding the line on one side while they fucking destroyed it on the other. Yeah. yeah. Um... Anyway. The party stopped running presidential candidates after 1956 when its nominee, Darlington Poots, won fewer than 6,000 votes. Wow. In the party's last decades, its members, many of them prominent in the labor, peace, civil rights, and civil liberties movements, fundamentally disagreed about the socialist movement's relationship to the labor movement and the Democratic Party and about how best to advance democracy abroad. In 1970 through 73, these strategic differences have become so acute that the Socialist Party of America changed its name to Social Democrats USA. Leaders of two of its caucuses formed separate socialist organizations, namely the uh, Socialist Party USA and the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, the latter of which became a precursor to today's DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So, um, I mean, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of the splintering and fac- uh, factioning, but um, ultimately we end up back at square one. And, you know, the, the Socialist Party USA and certain local chapters of the Democratic Socialists of America, um, you know, were all behind Howie Hawkins' Left Unity campaign. It's funny how they're coming back together behind the Green Party in some localities anyway, when they were the same party to begin with. Right. It's beautiful. It's like, okay, can we see a merger happen again here? <laughs> Uniting the left. Damn it. Um, um from 1901 to the onset of World War One, the Socialist Party had numerous elected, uh, elected officials throughout the U.S. There were two Socialist members of Congress, one of them being Victor Berger, uh, the other being Meyer London. Uh, but Victor Berger was part of the Sewer Socialist Movement. I don't know if we ever ended up recording the piece about Sewer Socialism. Uh, I don't think we did. We need I don't, th- to I don't think we, yeah, I don't think we did either. Uh, but Dean kind of told the story of it You know, like, people were making fun of the socialists because they cared about the sewers. But, I mean, sewers are kind of important. <laughs> uh, but no they really is. are. If they're not properly kept up, it can be a dangerous situation. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Milwaukee being the first and only major city to uh, elect a socialist mayor, which it did four times between 1910 and 1956. Over 70 mayors, though. 
So whether that's suburbs or rural areas isn't really speci specified. Um, but that'd be interesting to see too. Like, is he appealing to right. rural white people or is he appealing to urban white people? Because, and I mean, the reason I say white people is the time. Right. Uh, remember yeah. it, it at this point until the last time that Dubs ran in 1920, that was the first time um, that women could vote in a presidential election. So just to put that in perspective, he had to appeal, literally had to appeal to white men. And that is... Right, uh, and that's it. I, I think that that it's... is... Part of the problem with all the fracturing and splintering, how can you unite the whole working class if you're forced by the electoral system to appeal to a, you know, one segment? Only a small fraction of them. Right. Um, it's like, wait a minute. Um, just the white men who were allowed to vote at that point in time certainly did not represent the perspectives, the views, or the needs of the working class. So this they next, couldn't possibly. This, this next sentence is going to kind of intersect another piece that we have already on our platforms. It's voting strength that's greatest among recent Jewish, Finnish, and German immigrants. Uh, we talked about the, the people who fled their home countries after failed socialist revolutions that already had a collectivized mindset. We did a piece on collectivized immigrants of the early 1900s. Um, so that's, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you haven't checked that out, do it. <laughs> it's up there. Um, right. <laughs> and former populist farmers in the Midwest. From 1900, before its formal union, to 1912, it ran Eugene V. Debs for president at each election. The best showing ever for a socialist ticket was in 1912, um, when Debs gained 901,551 total votes, or 6% of the popular vote. In 1920, Debs ran again, this time while sitting in prison for opposing World War I, and uh, received 913,693 votes, which was 3.4% of the total. Remember, women could vote in that uh, election and the Democratic right. Party. As so there's literally pulled the wool the wool over right. a lot of people's eyes, uh, you know, because they were the they were the ones that were like, oh well, we've been fighting for this. No, women activists, members of the Socialist Party, members of the Communist Party, those are the people that were organizing for it. The Democrats came in when they right. realized that it was needed anyway and said, oh, we can throw you this phone, and then they, you know, right. <laughs> oh well, you owe it's us like, votes now. And that's the thing they they wanted to give that perception, but nobody owed them those votes. The thing is that that thing is already rolling down, whether they fucking wanted it to or not. And they realized it's a last ditch effort. Oh, we'd better get on the train, or we're gonna get run over by it. Right. And I mean, that being said, uh, for running a campaign before social media, before live television, um, running a campaign from prison and getting almost a, a million votes, that's pretty damn impressive given that context. 
Right. It's dope. Um, I dig it. So I'm going to go a little bit off topic here to read a quote from a, a member of the Socialist Party of America, Helen Keller. You might know her. Um, right. So the quote is, the few own the many because they possess the means of livelihood of all. The country is governed for the richest, for the corporations, the bankers, the land speculators, and for the exploiters of labor. The majority of mankind are working people. So as long as their fair demands, the ownership and control of their livelihoods, are set at naught, we can have neither men's rights nor women's rights. The majority of mankind is ground down by industrial oppression in order that the small remnant may live in ease. I love Helen Keller. You know, like, I, I had read somewhere that she was a socialist, but like... I didn't realize that, uh, or like how much she actually wrote about socialism. Right. That being said, how did she write? Probably with a typewriter. Braille. Yeah, well, that's what I was trying to figure out if Braille had been invented yet. I think so, but I'm not sure. Honestly, I'd have to look it up. That's a good question. She may have also dictated to other people to write down what it was. That's that's what she I was thinking. She probably had to dictate it in sign language. Right. I'm not sure. That would be something good to look up and see. That would be well. I mean, for for both her and for the uh, person that she's dictating to, that would be very difficult. Yeah. But obviously possible, because here we still have our words to be able to look back on. Yeah. Thankful for that. She had a powerful voice, and I'm glad she found a way to be able to use that and, you know, speak her piece, because these are ethical issues that everyone should be able to speak their piece on, regardless of ability. Agreed. Early political perspectives ranged from radical socialism to social democracy, with New York Party leader Morris Hillquit and Congress, Congressman Berger on the more social democratic or right wing of the party, and radical socialists and syndicalists, including members of the Industrial Workers of the World, which we also did a piece on recently, and the party's me, frequent I candidate. I still have to put that apparently on YouTube. It's on, oh, damn. it's on the podcast platforms and we posted it on Facebook, but apparently I never posted it on YouTube. Oops. Yeah. Okay, for our YouTube watchers, sorry, we'll get that one to you soon. <laughs> um, including members of the IWW and the party's frequent candidate, Eugene V. Debs, were on the left wing of the party. Um, you know, actual leftists. <laughs> There were also agrarian utopian leading radicals such as Julius Wayland of Kansas who edited the party's leading national newspaper, Appeal to Reason, along with trade unionists, Jewish, Finnish, and German immigrants, and intellectuals such as Walter Lippmann and the black activist intellectual Hubert Harrison. The party outsourced its newspapers and publications so that it would not have an internal editorial board that was a power in its own right. 
The result was that a handful of outside publishers dominated the published messages the party distributed and agitated for a much more radical anti-capitalistic revolutionary message to the party itself tolerated. Um, the Appeal to Reason newspaper thus became part of its radical left wing, as did the Charles H. Kerr Publishing Company of Chicago, which produced over half of the pamphlets and books that were sold at the party meetings. Uh, positions in the party on racial segregation varied, that's disappointing, and were the right. subject of heated debate from its foundation to the 1919 split. That's really disappointing. At its founding convention, a resolution was presented in favor of equal, equal rights for all human beings without distinction of color, race, or sex specifically highlighting African-Americans as particularly oppressed and exploited and calling for them to be organized by the socialist and labor movements. Uh, this was opposed by a number of white delegates who argued that specific appeals to black workers were unnecessary. That's why. Yeah, right. Whilst two of the black delegates present agreed with this position, the third, William Costley, held that blacks were in a distinct and peculiar position in contradiction to other laboring elements in the United States. Costly introduced his own resolution, which also condemned the campaign of lynching, burning, and disenfranchisement, which Black Americans suffered. Costly's resolution was passed, albeit with language, with the language on lynching, burning, and disenfranchisement removed. Also disappointing. Like, yeah. really? Really? I, I, that... can, I can see why there was some splits. Right. This explains shit a lot more than just the other facets that we have already read and I mean, learned about. The communist because party you know never, what, if some racists like, had a fucking argument about whether or not black people were people, I'm just saying. right. Right. If I was a member of the SPA at that time, and you know somebody tried telling me, "Oh, that's not important because of the shade of their pigment," I'd have told them to get fucked. I'd have been split in two. Working people are working people. Humans are humans. Anyway, whilst the passage of the resolution enshrined a commitment to opposing racism, sections of the party continued to argue against this. Well, fuck those guys. Um, for example, Victor Berger drew on scientific racism to claim that blacks and mulattoes constituted a lower race. Well, fuck you, Victor Berger. They were opposed by others who defended the spirit of the resolution, most notably Debs. This spread of opinion was reflected in the drawing up of constitutions by state parties in the South. The Socialist Party of Louisiana initially adopted a Negro clause which opposed disenfranch disenfranchisement of blacks, but it supported segregation. The clause was supported by some Southern Socialists whilst being opposed by others, Although this was not because of its accommodation of racism as such, but because it officially enshrined this accommodation. The party's national committee persuaded the Louisiana party to withdraw the clause. However, when the state party subsequently established segregated branches, this was not opposed by the wider party. Elsewhere, the 1912 platform of the Tennessee party stated that uh, white supremacist ideology was a tool of the capitalist class to divide and rule the working class, 
Well, the Virginia party passed a resolution three years earlier to focus more attention on encouraging solidarity between black and white workers and to invite non-white workers to join the party. Uh, most notable was the Socialist Party of Oklahoma, which led opposition to the state's 1910 ballot initiative on a grandfather clause to prevent blacks from voting. Prominent party That's member horrible. Oscar Ameringer ballot argument against it and the party launched an unsuccessful lawsuit to prevent the question from going to the ballot party propaganda argued that its working class solidarity did not extend across racial lines then blacks would be exploited as strike breakers and as an instrument or repression by the ruling class and the that's state- exactly the fucking game that they played with that one too mm-hmm. they incited fucking racist conflicts at work sites where people were striking by going and contacting black workers and asking them to come in and they had no fucking idea I bet what they were about to walk into to end up having you know a, the the shit turn violent at these places that was strings being pulled by these assholes to cause that conflict and division amongst the working class and that's fucked that's fucked the state party's 1912 platform stated that safety and advancement of the working class depends upon its solidarity and class consciousness those who would engender or foster race hatred or animosity between the white and black sections of the working class are the enemies of both this stands in the party's support from key black leaders in the state more widely anti-racist socialists were spurred to action by the Springfield race riot of 1908. Uh, socialist writer William English Walling's reporting on the riot inspired other so- another socialist, Mary White Ovington, among others, to work with prominent black leaders such as W.E.B. Dubois, Ida B. Dells, and Mary Church Terrell to establish the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Walling and Ovington both argued inside the party that it had not done enough to oppose racism and that they were joined by other left-wing intellectuals who published articles in the party press about the importance of anti-racism to the socialist cause, including Hubert Harrison and I.M. Rubinow. The party had a tense and complicated relationship with the uh, American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, as I've pointed out every time they come up, we'll eventually do a piece on the AFL, the CIO, and the AFL-CIO. Anyway, the AFL at this time was headed by Samuel Gompers, who was strongly opposed to the Socialist Party, uh, read class traitor. (laughs) But many rank and file unionists in the early party of the 20th century saw the Socialists as reliable political allies. Many moderate (coughs) Socialists, such as Victor Berger, and the International Typographical Union, President Max S. Hayes, urged close, co- close cooperation with the AFL and its member unions. Uh, others in the Socialist Party dismissed the AFL and its craft unions as antiquated and irrelevant, instead of favoring, are instead favoring the much more radical IWW and the syndicalist pl- uh, path to socialism. In 1911, IWW leader Bill Haywood was elected to the National Executive Committee of the Socialist Party, on which AFL partisan Morris Hillquit also served. 
The syndicalist and the electoral socialist squared off in lively public debate in New York City's Cooper Union on January 11, 1912, with Haywood declaring that Hillquit and the socialists ought to try, quote, a little sabotage in the right place at the proper time, end quote, and attacked Hillquit for having abandoned the class struggle by helping the New York garment workers negotiate an industrial agreement with their employers. Hillquit replied that he had no new message other than to reiterate a belief in a two-sided workers' movement with separate and equal political and trade union arms. Quote, a mere change of structural forms would not revolutionize the American labor movement as claimed by our extreme industrialists, he declared. The issue of syndicalism versus socialism was bitterly fought over the next two years, consummated by Haywood's recall from the Socialist Party's National Executive Committee, or NAC, and the departure of a broad section of the left wing from the organization. This memory of the, the memory of this split made the intra-party battles of 1919 and 1921 all the more bitter. The party's opposition to World War I caused a sharp decline in membership. Radicals moved further into further left into the IWW or to the Communist Party USA. Members who supported the war effort quit, ranging from the rank and file to prominent intellectuals such as Walter Lippmann, John Spargo, John James Graham Phelps Stokes, and William English Walling. Uh, some briefly formed the National Party in an unrealized hope of merging with the remnants of Theodore Roosevelt's Progressive Party and the Prohibition Party. Official membership fell from 83,284 in 1916 to 74,519 in 1918. By 1918, the Socialist Party had won 1,200 political offices, including electing U.S. Representative 32 state representatives and 79 mayors. It gained new votes in ethnic strongholds such as Milwaukee and New York from conservative German Americans who also opposed the war. In June 1918, the Socialist Party's longtime leader Eugene V. Debs made an anti-draft speech calling for draft resistance. Um, that was the speech in Canton, Ohio, actually, if you ever uh, go back and watch our Eugene V. Debs episode. Uh, we have a video of Mark Ruffalo reenacting uh, an excerpt from that speech, and I recommend it. Um, anyway, urging young men to ignore the draft law was a crime under the Sedition Act of 1918, and Debs was convicted and sentenced to serve 10 years in prison. He and two uh, dozen others had their sentences commuted by President Warren G. Harding at Christmas time, 1921. In January 1919, Vladimir Lenin invited the IWW and the radical wing of the Socialist Party to join in on the founding of the Communist Third International, the Comintern. The left-wing section of the Socialist Party emerged as an organized faction early that same year, building its organization around a lengthy left-wing manifesto authored by Louis C. Freyna. Uh, this effort to organize in order to, quote, win the Socialist Party for the left wing met with staunch resistance from the regulars who controlled a big majority of the seats of the Socialist Party um, governing the NEC. When it seemed certain that the 1919 party elections for a new NEC had been dominated by the left wing, the sitting NEC, citing voting irregularities, sound familiar? 
um, refused to tally the votes, declared the entire election invalid, and in May 1919 suspended the parties Russian, Latvian, Ukrainian, Polish, South Slavic, and Hungarian language federations, in addition to the entire state organization of Michigan. I want to interject here. We already know that the Socialist Party in Michigan was very sympathetic to the communist cause. Right. And it's like, to to get fucking shoved out like that because, oh shit, you outvoted us. Michigan's, Michigan's too radical for the NEC. Right. When, <laughs> when, when the people from Michigan are going, wait a minute, nah, fuck your bullshit. <laughs> We're further left than that. Um, but... Dude, the, just the, the sheer audacity there of being like, oh shit, we got outvoted, now we need to make a false claim of voter fraud? Fuck you! Sounds so familiar. Yeah, I wonder if that's so where familiar. Trump got it. I'm just kidding, there could have been a million Right, like here's Trump his playbook it. right here, the fucking NEC. <laughs> uh, do, 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 where did I stop? There we go. In future weeks, the state organizations of Massachusetts and Ohio would similarly be disenfranchised and, quote, reorganized by the NEC. While in New York and Pennsylvania, the regular state executive committees undertook reorganization of left-wing branches and locals on a case-by-case basis. In June 1919, the left-wing section held a conference in New York City to discuss their organizational plans. The group found themselves deeply divided, with one section led by NEC members Alfred Wagenknecht and L.E. Catterfield, and included famed radical journalist John Reed, favoring a continued effort to gain control of the SBA at its forthcoming emergency national convention in Chicago. Kind of like trying to push Joe Biden left. Right. Anyway, to be Man. held at the end of August, while another section, headed by the Russian Socialist Federation of Alexander Stoklitsky and Nicholas Arowich and the Socialist Party of Michigan, seeking to wash their hands of the Socialist Party and immediately move to the establishment of a new Communist Party of America. Eventually, this latter federation-dominated group was joined by important leftists <coughs> C.E. Ruthenberg and Louis Freyna. A depletion of left-wing forces, which made the result of the 1919 Socialist Convention a foregone conclusion. Regardless, the plans of Wagenknecht and Reed to fight it out at the 1919 Emergency National Convention continued apace. With the most radical state organizations effectively purged by the regulars, um, the regulars were Massachusetts, Minnesota, here, or... Um, or I'm sorry, those were the ones purged, um, or unable to participate, like Ohio and Michigan. Um, and the left-wing language federation suspended. A big majority of the hastily elected delegates to the gathering were controlled by the executive secretary, Adolf Germer, and the regulars. A group of left-wingers without delegate credentials, including Reed and his sidekick, Benjamin Gitlow, made an effort to occupy chairs on the convention floor before the gathering was called into order. The incumbents were unable to block the left-wingers at the door, but soon called the already present police to their aid, and the officers of the law obligingly expelled the boisterous radicals from the hall. Sound familiar? With the Credentials Committee firmly in the hands of the regulars, which really means the right-wingers, 
trying to be the right wing of, of fucking left party, but fuck them. Um, in the hands of the regulars from the outset, the outcome of the gathering was no longer in doubt, and most of the remaining left-wing delegates departed to meet with other co-thinkers downstairs in a previously reserved room in a parallel convention. It was this gathering which established itself as the Communist Labor Party on August 31st, 1919. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Chicago, the Federations and Michiganders and their supporters established the Communist Party of America at a convention gaveled the order on September 1st, 1919. Unity between these two communist organizations was a lengthy and complicated process, formally taking place at a secret convention held at Overlook Mountain House near Woodstock, New York in May 1921, with the establishment of a new unified Communist Party of America. A left-wing, uh, loyal to the Communist International, remained in the Socialist Party through 1921, continuing the fight to bring the Socialist Party into the ranks of the Comintern. Uh, this group, which opposed the underground secret organizations which the Communist parties had begun, or had become, sorry, uh, which that's due to the first Red Scare, which will eventually talked we'll about. Yeah. Uh, this, I just read that, included noted party journalists uh, J. Lewis Engdahl and William Cruz, head of the party's youth affiliate, the Young People's Socialist League, as well as a significant segment of the Socialist Party's Chicago organization. Uh, these left-wing dissidents continued to make themselves heard until their departure from the party after the convention of 1921. On January 7th, 1920, less than a week after the Palmer raids had swept and stunned the country, the New York Assembly was called to order. The majority Republicans easily elected their candidate for the Speaker, Thaddeus C. Sweet, and after opening day formalities, the body took a brief recess. Back in session, Sweet declared, quote, the chair directs the sergeant-at-arms to present for the bar of the house Samuel A. DeWitt, Samuel Orr, Louis Waldman, Charles Solomon, and August Claysons, the assembly's five socialist members. I wish this had... However, the February 1925 convention found its task was virtually insurmountable as the heterogeneous organization had split over the fundamental question of realignment of the parties via the primary elections process as opposed to establishment of a new competitive political party. The railway unions, whose efforts had originally brought the CPPA into existence, were fairly solidly united against the third-party tactic, instead favoring continuation of the CPPA as a sort of pressure group for progressive change within the structure of the Democratic and Republican parties. Eugene V. Debs addressed a mass meeting, including delegates of the convention in a keynote address delivered at the Lexington Hotel early in the afternoon of February 21st. Uh, after the Debs speech, those delegates favoring establishment of a new political party were then reconvened with the opponents of an independent political party to party. The reconvened founding convention found itself split between adherents of a non-class progressive party based on individual memberships as opposed to the socialist conception of a class-conscious labor party employing direct affiliation of organizations of workers, farmers, uh, progressive politicals, educational groups who fully accept its programs and principles. 
Following extensive debate, the socialist counterproposal was defeated by a vote of 93 to 64. The trade unions that coveted gone, the farmers non-existent, the Socialist Party exited the convention and abandoned the strategy of establishing a new mass party through the CPPA. A progressive party was formed by the remaining liberals, and the group survived for a short time in a limited number of states throughout the 1920s. So there's there's a lot of history in, of the Socialist Party after Debs. Um, I'm not gonna dive into any of it really, um, but they they allowed Trotskyists into the party, and that pissed off the more Marxist-Leninist-minded people. Um, right who all left for the Communist Party, pretty much. And uh, then they ended up kicking Trotskyists out of the party uh, about 1937. I don't know the exact details behind that, but it was too late to get people to come back from the Communist Party who had been organizing them for 20 years at that point. Right. They were fully committed. They weren't going to come back. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it was the demise of the all-inclusive party, really. And uh, the remnants of the party in 1972, keep in mind they stopped running presidential candidates in 1956. In 1972, they finally changed their name and completely reformed. Um, the now defunct uh, Social Democrats USA. Um, so, the remnants of what was left of the party uh, formed the Socialist Party USA. Uh, it was founded in 1973 um, after the split and renaming of the Socialist Party of America. Uh, the party is committed to multi-tendency socialism. Along with its predecessor, Socialist Party USA has received varying degrees of support when its candidates have competed against those from the Republican Democratic parties. SPUSA advocates for complete independence from the Democratic Party, self-described as opposing all forms of oppression, specifically uh, capitalism and authoritarian forms of communism. The party advocates for the creation of a radical democracy that places people's lives under their own control, a non-racist, classless, feminist, socialist society in which the people own and control the means of production and distribution through democratically controlled public agencies, cooperatives, or other collective groups. Full employment is realized for everyone who wants to work. Workers have the right to form unions freely and to strike and engage in other forms of job actions. And production of society is used for the benefit of all humanity, not for the private profit of the few. The funny thing is, is they, they claim that they stand against all authoritarian forms of communism, but like, if they were to actually like, look and not believe Western propaganda, which is probably all they had at the time in their defense, but right. um, if they had been able to say <coughs> the USSR and see how things were running, I think that they wouldn't have been quite so opposed to it. Yes, there was some authoritarian aspects of it. There was some oversteps by the Communist Party of the USSR. Nobody's questioning that. But um, every goal, damn near, that was on their list was accomplished by the USSR. Right. Indeed. Um, anyway, so I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about Howie Hawkins' campaign. 
under the Socialist Party. In October 2019, the Socialist Party nominated Howie Hawkins for President of the United States in the 2020 election. Howie also received the Green Party, obviously, 2020 presidential nomination, and ran uh, for that of various state-level parties, such as the Liberty Union Party in Vermont, in a bid to unite the non-sectarian independent left behind a single campaign. Um, they could have just used the words left unity there. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> how he does. He, he took what um, whatever he could to organize with groups that had similar goals in the state, even if there wasn't a socialist party or a green party there. For example, the Liberty Union Party, because they are for whatever reason there they were on the ballot and the green party wasn't in the 2020 election but anyway um that's strange yeah but anyway we're not gonna uh dive too deep into that but i basically just wanted to point out on the 100th anniversary of the campaign that debs ran from prison he also campaigned on Debs' call for a million votes for socialism. Uh, unfortunately, also like Debs, he fell uh, a little bit short of that goal. Um, but that being said, the, the movement still has that very Debs-esque unity mindset. Um, and they're still around today. They're not the most radical party out there, but they're there and they, they mean what they say. If we could actually see a merger between them and the Green Party, um, we the, might actually see a larger driving force. I mean, can you imagine right. if the, if the uh, Left Unity campaign like brought together the Socialist Party, the PSL, the Communist Party USA, the Democratic Socialists, and the Green Party. I mean... That would be an enormous driving force. There would be no denying that party. Unified. A fucking seat at the table with the Democrats and the Republicans. It would be too much voting power for them to fucking continue to deny access to even something as simple as the fucking debates oh yeah and can you imagine how marjorie taylor green would react to a fucking oh she would shit herself and probably go on a racist rant and oh yeah she'd be talking jewish space lasers again and shit fucking yeah. crazy bitch <laughs> absolutely anyway we're gonna we're gonna start to wrap this up now um this is been our series on eugene Debs and well, I guess his influence is a big part of it, too. Uh, the point is, is that his legacy still lives on today. Right. Um, the things he helped build, the the ethical stance that he took on things, especially when it came to dealing with that racist shit within the party, for him to be like, wait a minute, no, fuck that, we'll, we'll leave and start our own party rather than deal with racist shit that doesn't belong on the left, doesn't belong yeah. anywhere but yeah. definitely not welcome there. I love that he and other like-minded people in the party took that stance. That was a division that needed to happen, you know? But uh, it's it's just beautiful to see the example that he led 
for so many decades. Yeah. I mean, there was there was a, a quite long history. I mean, 30-something years after Debs' last presidential run was when they finally stopped uh, running candidates. But, I mean, the dude that... Uh, shit, what was his name? The dude that ran after... Norman Thomas. There we go. Um, he, he ran six times presidential candidate um, and, and you know like the generation that directly followed uh Debs which I mean I know in the case of Norman Thomas uh one of these articles in the research for this was talking about how you know he was basically picked as the successor of Debs um, and you know like him and his cohorts took a I mean, some of them were Trotskyists, which, I mean, you know, whatever. But, like, I mean, they were all explicitly Marxists. Right. So, that's that's a plus. Um, but, I mean, in fighting, you know, the split with the Trotskyists, um, the... Um, the opposition to the New Deal kind of really put the nail on the coffin i mean they were calling it a uh, capitalist palliative which i mean they were wrong like did it improve some things yes but did exactly. it go far enough no exactly but the way that i view that is whether whether it's palliative or not an increase in material conditions is an increase in material conditions Right, absolutely. We shouldn't and be the, punching down, even if it means we gotta give the Democrats some credit for doing one good thing in their fucking 150 year history. As uncomfortable as maybe. <laughs> and I mean, I would also argue that that wasn't explicitly because of the, uh, I, I, okay, so like, let's put this in perspective. The New Deal, was opposed by the Socialist Party, but it was pushed for by the Communist Party. Actually, it was pressure from the Communist Party that kind of brought about the New Deal in the first place. Right, like it's at least taking a step in the right direction, driving that needle further to the left, as Dean would say. Right. And I mean, the fight for the reforms that ended up being the New Deal I would say definitely move the needle left. Right. It made it where workers had more rights to be able to actually protest conditions, to demand proper pay, to demand proper benefits. But that being basis. said, as with the nature of liberal bourgeois reforms, it's been stripped apart for fucking 50 years. Right. Look, they're still trying to strip, you know, anything that fucking helps lift people up look at what they're trying to do to social security and it's like that's our fucking money not yours that was supposed to be mistaken, held in trust part of the new deal right if i remember correctly i believe so yes because that was something that was supposed to basically be a savings account not something that the government could borrow from and be like well i know we fucked you out of your money that we're supposed to be saving up for your retirement but we're just going to defund that completely so we can keep the rest too 
Yeah. Fuck and I mean, you. that's the nature of the neoliberal era, the kind of rolling back of the capitalist platitudes that we got in the 30s and 40s through organizing the struggle. They've been I really? It, they've been rolling it back since the 50s. I really think that these motherfuckers need to be reminded that sitting down at the table and discussing these things and peacefully protesting, going on strike, that's that's the the middle ground that we came to with them when they freaked the fuck out because the left was burning shit. Maybe we need to remind them that their shit can fucking burn again. Like, well, how yeah, dare I you? Mean, uh, you know, not to talk about it too much, but I mean, we all know that the, there's a handful of reasons that uh, Chauvin is going to prison for the murder of George Floyd. And that is, first and foremost, boots on the ground, people in the streets. Uh, right. The second thing I want to point out in that situation is that it was recorded. Police the police, always police the police. If there wouldn't mm-hmm. have been video, it would have just been another black man dead. And Chauvin would probably still be on the force today. Right. Um, so bust those cameras out on on top of that uh the burning down of the third precinct had higher approval ratings than biden or trump did in the presidential campaign at that time right it absolutely did we were cheering we were like yeah burn that motherfucker (laughs) like show them because it's like if you are going to use this thing that we are paying for against us as a weapon to fucking kill us off fuck you we're gonna burn your shit you know because like that kind of harkens back to the civil rights movement which i mean Mm -hmm. started in the 40s in the socialist party by the way Um, right the communist party did more actual organizing about it but that's neither here nor there uh, you know, like the the liberals tend to tout it as like you know Martin Luther King's like nonviolent marches got shit done. You know, well like even Martin Luther King changed act. his mind about that well, later exa- in life. Ex- exactly, and that's that's why he was killed is because he was organizing across racial lines. But right, what I was gonna say is the like poor people's he movement. still took a he still took a more pacifist approach. And that's all well and dandy, but that's not what got the civil rights passed. When MLK was assassinated in fucking 110 American cities were, you know, subject to riots. That's what got the Civil Rights Act passed. Right. Just saying. Get shit done. History's shown us how. If they don't want to be adults about it and sit down at the fucking table and discuss this shit and come to terms as far as getting your fair share of the wealth that you fucking produce. If they don't want to sit down and talk about it like adults, then we can force their hands. We yeah. have ways. We And I mean we outnumber frankly, them. Frankly, I think I think that, you know, like it's a hundred years overdue almost. Well, more, more than, I don't know why I said almost. I mean, you know, like these, these kind of changes should have been forced in the reconstruction era. I mean, like, I'm not going to say that Abe Lincoln was a Marxist, but he quoted Marx in a state of the union address. Like he obviously admired him and his ideals. 
Right. Like, I mean, we had the possibility to do reconstruction in a way that actually benefited people, and we didn't. Right. And, I mean, even at that point in time, things only even got pushed as far as they did because of things like the Pullman strike, where, okay, you don't want to concede some terms like an adult, we're setting your shit on fire. But I mean, even even look before the Civil War, you know, like there was uh, opposition to slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of yeah. what finally started like changing the narrative about it. I mean, of course, you know, especially in the South, people were saying that, you know, like Harriet Tubman was a fucking criminal and a murderer and all this shit. John Brown's a murderer and fucking crazy or whatever. But like, they were them. <laughs> they're obviously not the only ones, but like they were two people from the South who were very adamant about changing the system they lived in. And I mean, like John Brown didn't want it to come to violence at all, but like he came to a realization that the only thing that could wash away the sins of uh, the the stains of the sin that was slavery is you know blood kill the slavers well i mean not just not just that but like i mean he felt like it was going to be settled with large amounts of blood and he was right the civil war was still to this day the bloodiest war america's fought in. right but dude the the way he went about shit of being like okay uh if this can't be done in a legislative way yet then uh i'm just gonna take some shit into my own hands and literally went around freeing slaves and in the cases where they were given resistance he used violence and killed the fucking slavers like okay if you're gonna resist me freeing your slaves then we'll free you of your skin suit bye (laughs) because that's what fucking apparently needed to be done and he took matters into his own hands and you know, he took inspiration I, from Christ going fucking ham on the bankers of the temple. Yes, he did. He actually was inspired in the right ways by his Christian beliefs that, you know, drove him to go, wait a minute, fuck this. No, there's no excuse for owning other human beings, which I will point out is a Christ like perspective, not an Old Testament perspective, because the Old Testament was totally fucking cool with slavery. And that's a lot of what these racist motherfuckers used to justify their slavery. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus said, fuck all that. Maybe not in those words, but he was going. I mean, how would you know? Do you speak Aramaic? Right. <laughs> no, I don't. But I have read a few different copies of the Bible. Um, one of them actually being kicked out by the Catholic Church, which was really surprising because uh, it was it was a a translation that is from literally the oldest scroll, scrolls that we have been able to find in order to get the most direct translation. And it also included the apocryphal texts, which Constantine had wiped out entirely, so he thought. Um, You know, those were like amongst the Nag Hammadi texts, things like that, that the priests had hidden in order to stop him from being destroyed because they wanted to retain that knowledge. And that was actually included in that. And it's 
a very striking difference when you read the apocryphal texts and the Gnostic writings to see the enormous difference in the level of ethics between them and the ones who were still trying to cling to the Old Testament teachings instead of going, this is something that you were supposed to learn from, not emulate. Um, but uh, he, he definitely at least let that drive him for the right reasons when it came to his personal morals and ethics and going, fuck this, this is inhumane. You don't get to own other people. This ain't right. Right. And I mean, that being said, he's another guy we need to do a, a full piece on. He yeah, is a badass. A straight up biography piece on. But until we do our own, I highly recommend um, the Revolutionary Left Radio episode. I believe it's called John Brown Man on Fire or Man on Fire, something like that. Right on. Rev Left Radio, John Brown. Go listen. Yep. Rev Left Radio is very awesome. They're very thorough in detail. And don't leave anything out. They're excellent at researching every subject that they delved into and yeah, put it and in I mean, terms. Even though the host, Brett, is like, well, I mean, early in the show, he was more of a libertarian socialist. But like, through most of the history of the show, he's identified as a Marxist Leninist. But that's certainly not the only thing that he talks about. Um, they talk about right. anarchism, they talk about anar anarcho-syndicalism, they talk about nihilism. Right. Um, I, I mean, they, they try really hard to platform the whole left. And it's part of the inspiration for what we're doing here, honestly. Right. It truly is. Like, when you first started sharing those uh, recordings from them, I was just like, holy shit, like, that's inspiring, you know? Um, I really and enjoy I mean, what they like, do. And I mean, definitely not the only ones that have been inspired by them either. Actually, they have a whole slew of spinoff podcasts that are all under the Rev Left umbrella uh, that, yeah. were, that were, you know, initially motivated or, uh, you know, motivated the, by Rev Left. Right. And honestly, I think maybe his own personal leanings shifting further left might be because of the same reasons ours have of the more you learn about this by delving into it and exploring it and trying to understand it the further left it's going to drive you the more yeah. exposure and, that and you have to left thing, history I, I was talking to emily the other day about how uh you know like i initially started reading communist texts like not really expecting to you know relate to it like I have uh, right. you know I've always considered myself much like Brett did more of a libertarian socialist at least since I've been willing to use the term socialism but... even that was uh, a difficult one of like wait a minute <laughs> yeah, but that's exactly. also but like I, I, I decided to like start looking into <coughs> you know, like Marxist-Leninist theory to find out why it was so bad. Right. And realize, wait a minute, this isn't what people paint it to be at all, which just brings to mind that meme that you shared the other day of Marx sitting there like, bro, you didn't, you didn't read, read the read book. The book. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> you know? So, it's oh, like, man. fuck. Fuck. <laughs> at least read, like, the cliff notes or something get the gist that's one thing that i find frustrating when people try to 
um, argue with me against Marxist ideals, and they everything that spills forth from that hole in their face clearly shows that they have not actually read any Marx. They're just going on this false propaganda picture that was painted via Red Scare tactics. And it's like, wait a minute, you were disinformed. Well, this isn't the same meme, but I I still enjoy it. Hold on. Hold on. Mark's memes are always beautiful. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> yes. See, Lennon would tell you the same thing. Speaking of... Uh, there's a piece we're doing on Lenin's writing as well. That's on our list for the Revolutionary yeah. Left Book Club. If that's not inspired by Revolutionary Left Radio. Right. Uh, the, funny, <laughs> the funny thing is, is there actually is a spinoff that is a book club, but they didn't call it that. I'm like, what? Like, really? That's okay. We will. <laughs> right. Speaking of the Red Left Book Club, um, tomorrow we will be going live and actually, well, I forgot for a moment, we're pre-recording this, but we do this every Thursday and this will be getting published next Wednesday. So still again, tomorrow we'll be going live with another segment on the Black Panther Party. <laughs> we do this every Thursday. We have an episode uh, that is part of our Revolutionary Left Book Club. Right now we are reading Bobby Seals' Seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party and discussing the dialectical materialism that they were bringing to the table, the Maoist ideals that they were putting into action in order to actually lift up their community one person at a time. And it's quite beautiful. Bobby Seale's writing is fucking eloquent. I love it. Hearing these things of, about what happened back in the 60s and 70s coming from his mouth has been quite eye-opening and invigorating i dig it indeed <laughs> also don't forget to join us on mondays we do really long episodes live and interacting with everyone, you know, online, at least if you are on uh, Facebook or YouTube, where we can follow with the comments, um, we cover current events. So if there is something you would like to bring attention to, please join us and, you know, let us know in the comments so we can pull that up and discuss that too. Um, and also keep your eyes open for more of the these episodes we're going to continue when it comes to the labor history segments and the left ideology segments really because we're yes the philosophy um, i guess we can talk a little bit about the international pieces we have coming up in the near future i'm not going to say you know like this week or next week or anything like that but uh we'll let you know when they're coming um but the german revolutions of 18 uh german revolutions and counter revolutions of 1848 and 1849, which kind of led to the collectivized immigrants uh, coming here in the mid-1800s, early 1900s. We talked about that in an episode. Yes. Um, I think it's called Collectivized Immigrants of 
the 1900s or 1800s or something. Um, if I remember correct, that was one of the first labor history pieces that we've done. And this yeah. this kind of dialectic unfolding, this this cycle of revolution and counter-revolution is a big part of what spurred Marx and other communists to write the Communist Manifesto. So that's when we're going to start really diving into uh, specifically Marx's writing um, for the first time on this show, which I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, so yeah, it'll be the German revolutions and counter-revolutions of 1848 and 1849, then the Communist Manifesto, and then it'll probably be a mini-series, if we're honest, on the, on the Paris right. Commune, uh, and we're going to include some things that Marx and Engels wrote about the Paris Commune. And then from there, we'll go over to Russia, uh, you know, talk about um, the February Revolution and the October Revolution. Um, in terms of our book club, Lenin's works, I, I mean, what is to be done probably should be, uh, if, if we were going to do it all chronologically like that, what is to be done should probably be before the February Revolution and then State and Revolution immediately after uh, the October Revolution. But I think that we're going to just stick to like the history oriented segments and then circle back with the Revolutionary Left Book Club to cover the books other than the Communist Manifesto. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll have like a, a broad piece on Lenin. Which Indeed. also might turn into a, a two-parter. Entire series. <laughs> yeah. Lenin deserves a series, I think. Well, I mean, ultimately he's going to have a whole series under the Revolutionary Left Book Club anyway, if we're doing what is to be done and state and revolution. Yeah. But uh, either way, the point is we're here on every Monday and Thursday, and uh, sometimes we drop... Um, labor history right on wednesdays yeah uh or i mean you know we sometimes might, on we, sundays i was gonna say <laughs> we might do a different day of the week just to get another piece out of knows. right i love where this has already begun to grow we've only been at this for a few months and we're and i mean honestly into a nice yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, honestly, it was really hard at first because we wanted to do this podcast about these topics and we thought that we understood them well enough. And then we've spent months reading because we didn't know shit. Right. <laughs> We're learning right along with you guys here because these are certain things that we have found being brought up and discussed that it's like, wait a minute, I want to learn more about this so I can actually discuss this from an educated point of view. Uh, you know, how the fuck can I form an opinion on something if I have not read it first? Right. And to be fair, even as far left as I already was, this has pushed me even further. I love it. I fucking love it. Anyway, um, no matter what we're releasing, video-wise or podcast-wise, it all comes out at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Mm-hmm. No matter what day of the week it is, so yeah, keep an eye out. Expect us. We are legion. We're here, indeed, and we are coming. <laughs> For your support. Have a great night.